Welcome to episode 18 of Killer Hangover. My name is Beth. And I'm Bettina. And this week we have some true crime and paranormal stories from the state of New Jersey. Yes. Yes. Mom is in charge of the beverage because she's doing the paranormal this week. So, Mom, what did you bring us to drink? Why did something fun this time i know i see a little black cat on there yeah i didn't bring anything from new jersey to speak of but i did um bring something from the weinkarte or the menu that was on the hindenburg which is what i'm going to do my paranormal on oh okay interesting so from the wine list that was a part of the menu on the hindenburg you can see on the last part here it says Liebfrau Milch. Mm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> my word for it. <laughs> yep. Don't speak German. Kirschenstuck aus Lisa. Now, they did have that also at the liquor store, but it's a little too sweet for me. So I took... We don't like sweet. <laughs> no. And, and this is going to be sweet, but I took... Mom, I am listening to you, but I'm also reading the back of the bottle. Because that's what's facing you. Uh, did you know that this bottle was made in New Jersey? No shit. Just a minute. (laughs) Mother. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Look. Oh my gosh. It's made in Northvale, New Jersey. (laughs) You didn't plan that? No, I didn't. I I planned to. (laughs) You planned the wine list from. I planned the wine list from from the Hindenburg. (laughs) Wow. Wow, full circle. I have serious chills. That is awesome. <laughs> you didn't plan that? You promise? No, I promise. Don't I didn't. lie to me. I can't lie to you. Oh my gosh. That is so cool. I just got it because I remember growing up that I guess my parents drank this because it was in the refrigerator all the time. But <laughs> growing up in Germany, we got this and there was always a little plastic cat that was hanging from one of these bottles oh and you know the, i don't know it was their their shtick i guess i don't know oh that's really cute i wonder why they don't do that anymore but not real cute because the cat looked like oh, that's that. a scary cat <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't real cute <laughs> but wow okay awesome that is pretty darn awesome sorry for my language Okay, so this is a uh, white wine full of a lot of citrus and kind of a burst of fresh fruit. So, cheers. It's a schwarze Katze. Yeah, I'm not trying to say that again. Very easy to drink. Very easy to drink. But just refreshing. Mm -hmm. It's sweeter than I normally drink, but it has like a bitter aftertaste, I want to say, kind of. No, it's pretty sweet. (laughs) (laughs) I was trying to sound all like, I know wine. No, it's pretty sweet. Yeah, I just thought it would be fun to drink something from Germany, you know, since German wines were sold on the Zeppelin. So anyway, like I know Zeppelin from the movie, the Disney movie Up. (laughs) 
Oh, and also a uh, Christmas story when little Randy picks it up at Christmas morning and goes, Ooh, Ooh a, a Zeppelin! Zeppelin. <laughs> That's mine! <laughs> <laughs> well, let's just dive into the true crime story. I'm just going to apologize to you right now, Mom. The story has kids in it. Again. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. <sighs> All right. So the year is 1972 and police in Westfield, New Jersey are called to a fire at 431 Hillside Avenue. The home was a large Grand Victorian and by the evening the house would be burned down. Now this fire is not the crime. The home had been left empty from a crime from the previous year. Okay. I think the town or whoever lit the fire was probably just sick of, I mean, it was a horrendous crime. So I think somebody get rid of it. Yeah. So that crime that happened the previous year in 1971. Good job on math. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) So a family of five lived at 431 Hillside Avenue. So there was John List. He was a very religious Lutheran, and he worked as an accountant. An accountant. His wife, Helen. His three children, Patricia, who was 16, John Jr., who was 15, and Frederick, who was 13, and John's mother, Alma, who lived in the third-story apartment. The week of November 9th, 1971, Schools for the three children received letters from the family stating that they were going on a vacation to help an ailing relative. This didn't come across as odd. It was kind. The family was normal, church-going, active in the community. The family showed no signs of what was to come. What's normal? Mm, That's true. (laughs) (laughs) The letters stated that they would be gone for a few weeks. Neighbors started noticing that lights inside the house were all left on. Mm. Every single one of them. All day and night. Okay. And when over time, about four weeks actually, the lights just started to die out one by one, one of the neighbors decided to call the police. Yeah. Something had to be wrong, right? Police looked into the situation, making... Wrong, right? Wrong, right? (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) It's wrong, right? <laughs> right, wrong? Am I right or am I right or am I right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm wrong. <laughs> Sorry, that was a quote. <laughs> Groundhog Day. Yeah. Okay, so police look into the situation, making note that the schools had received those letters, and they were, con- they were not concerned for the family. But the thought that maybe the elderly mother, Alma, had stayed behind and... Possibly something had happened, so they went to investigate the home. No one came to the door when they knocked, so they ended up entering the home through a back window. The house was cold, very cold. It was now December 7th, and they're in New Jersey, so naturally the area is cold, but this house was freezing. Also, classical music filled the home. Oh, God, I just got chills. That. And by this time, it being a month since the family had left, all the lights but one in a hallway had all died out. Burnt out? Died out? They don't work. 
They made their way through the house and into the home's ballroom, where they discovered four bodies in sleeping bags in the middle of the large room. Oh. They were the bodies of Helen List, Patricia, John Jr., and Frederick. They had all been shot in the head. The eldest boy, John Jr., had actually been shot multiple times. Mm. With John and his mother, Alma, still missing, they continued their search of the home. The police were terrified. In the interview I watched, the police officer um, said that the whole house was just super eerie. Mm-hmm. And well, even yeah. before they found the bodies, it was just super eerie. And uh, with the classical music playing yeah, and exactly. it being as cold as it was. And dark because everything is yep, burnt out. Yep, it was then. so dark. And he said that every corner they turned and every door they opened, because all the doors were closed, every door that they opened, all the rooms, they just felt like someone's going to jump out at them. It was just absolutely terrifying. So the uh, backup arrives at the home. In about 45 minutes of slowly searching the home, they discover Alma List on the floor in a hallway in her third-story apartment. She was also in a sleeping bag, and she'd also been shot in the head. Wow, that's so weird. So now the question remains, where was John List? Then they discover it. A letter left in the study on the desk. A letter from John addressed to his pastor. List took full responsibility for the murders of his family. The letter stated that he was facing bankruptcy, and he wanted to spare his family from the sin of poverty. Quote, at least I'm sure they all went to heaven, the letter stated. Side note, I'm not saying that the Lutheran religion believes that poverty was a sin. No. But I guess... From what I read, and maybe you can help me clarify this, but the Puritans believed that being lazy was a sin. Quote, idleness is the devil's plaything. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, hard work showed you were prepared for God's love. That's kind of like what I read in the research I did. Is well, that- he probably, it might not have been totally a religious standpoint. It might have been. It was all religion for him. And I'll, I'll get, I'll dive more into that but i did just want to he killed them so they would go to heaven okay (laughs) so either way from what i read on on john list here filing for bankruptcy would have been a sin to his church that's how what he believed so the letter went on to say p.s mother is in the hallway in the attic on the third floor she was too heavy to move unquote good grief so now there's this nationwide manhunt Two days after the bodies were found, List's car was discovered at JFK National Airport. But that was it. The letter was the last they would hear from John List for many years to come. So let's chat about let's let's chat about John List, shall we? Mm-hmm. He was born John Emil List, September seventeenth, nineteen twenty-five, in Bay City, Michigan. He was born to very strict German-American parents. What's up with the German theme? <laughs> wow, he didn't plan that at all. That's weird. Um, he was an only child. His father, Frederick, was very stern. He was self-sufficient. John referred to him as a, quote, very God-loving man. He was raised in a very strict Lutheran household. His mother, Alma, adored John and doted on him all the time. 
John grew up very devout to his religion. He taught Sunday school and was very active in his community. So nothing of his childhood was abnormal or terrible. Right. Sounds pretty good. Actually. Yeah. He was not abused. I mean, nothing like that. He had a very God-loving home. I mean, it was very... <laughs> there it is again. Normal. <laughs> no, no, no. I do not like using that word. <laughs> So in 1943, he enlisted in the United States Army and served in the infantry. He was a laboratory technician during World War II. After he was discharged, he went to college at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. He studied business administration and got a master's degree, master's degree in accounting. So the murders don't stem from his childhood mm-hmm. necessarily. John was a very quiet child. Confrontation was something he always ran from. He repressed everything. Since a young boy, he sucked it up and buried it. I believe, as well as a lot of psychologists, actually, I mean, (laughs) we're on the same field here. (laughs) (laughs) The killings stemmed from all of these repressed emotions just boiling over. A lot of little disappointments that became too much for him to take. In 1950, he met Helen Morris Taylor. She was a widow to an officer killed in Korea. And after three months of dating, they got married. Now, I think this is his first troubled spot in his life. They were married because she said she was pregnant. Oh, but she wasn't. She ended up not being pregnant. And I think he'd felt manipulated, used, pressured, right. trapped, trapped. Yeah. But confrontation's not a thing. So he just buried it. Even mm. as he got older. Yep. They go on to have three kids. Actually, three kids in four years. The whole time he can't keep a steady job. The resentment oh, and really? buried feelings start to grow and grow. So in all the research, I said other jobs when they were interviewed they didn't say he was weird or anything he just i don't know he just couldn't do it he just couldn't hack it i don't know he was so burdened with what was happening at home i think of just trying to provide for three kids and his wife and so the family moves a lot because of his jobs keep changing he just stays quiet 1965, John gets a job with the First National Bank of New Jersey as VP. Wow. Finally, he's on track to a good career. So I read in many places that he felt really pressured to buy that big, glorious mansion in 431 Hillside Avenue. By whom? Pressured by his wife. Pressured by the peers in his, you know, of his small, Mm -hmm. new of his new job, of the peers of the small town he lived in. Uh, anyway, you know, whatever. Maybe himself, too. Maybe he wanted to prove. I don't. I yeah, mean. I don't. I don't know. But he purchased the grandest home in Westfield, New Jersey. He actually borrowed funds from his mom, Alma, to buy the home and then moved her in with them. Mm. With the mother living there now, marital problems doubled. <laughs> and he actually got fired from the bank after one no. year. Oh, in an interview with List, the only interview that's out there, actually, he claims, quote, I was beaten down on the failure side, unquote. He would 
get up every day. He'd put on his suit. He would take the train so people would think he was still doing well. And then he'd just hang out all day? Yeah. Yeah. So the family was becoming... so sad. I know. The family was becoming a huge burden. He became super resentful of his wife, his mother, his children, and all their needs. They were teenagers now. So then November 1971, John discovered it was necessary to file for bankruptcy. He stated he weighed his options. Suicide was the first option, but considered a mortal sin by his religion. So, quote, I'd go straight to hell. (laughs) But I'm just going to kill everybody else. Oh, gosh. (laughs) The option of just leaving, his family would just be left to the welfare state. And again, poverty was a sin, which meant they would lose their eternal soul and be damned. That's what he said, not me. So, just (laughs) making that clear. So, the only solution... Was to kill him. Yeah, I see that. (laughs) Quote, if I killed them, I would save them from any problems. I felt that even though I killed the family, I could still get forgiveness from God. Holy smokes. He just rectified that in his mind. So John List suffered OCD. A psychologist explained this, that he deals with things in a cold clinical way. Repressing problems and forming a quote, chilling detachment. There is one interview with John Lynch. Lynch? Who's John Lynch? God damn it, Beth. There is one interview with John List. I watched it on an episode of American Justice. That's where I got all of these quotes, actually. You can watch it on YouTube. It's super interesting. So I'll put the link in the to, uh, to the episode in the description. So anyway, he shares the details of the fateful day. So I'm going to give you his version. Version. November 9th, 1971, which is my wedding anniversary. <laughs> anyway, I well, had 71, but yeah. Wow. <laughs> We've been married for a long time and I'm only 31. <laughs> and I had you really early. <laughs> I had myself so convinced that this was what I had to do. He walked down to the kitchen to have breakfast with his children. List watched them eat, that they headed off to school. He grabbed his 9mm handgun and his father's old Colt 22 caliber revolver from the garage. Helen came down to the kitchen for her morning coffee. He came around and shot her in the head. Then he went to his mother's third floor apartment which, where she was just starting to eat her breakfast. She greeted him with a kiss. What was that noise? She asked him. Oh, it must have been noise in the back. That's why I came up, he answered. She turned to walk to the back of her apartment to look out the back, and that's when he shot and killed his mother. Jeez. He said that he was very surprised at the amount of blood. In the interview, he describes how he cleaned up his mother's blood. He explains the whole scenario of coming up to her apartment And how when he shot her false teeth had broken on the floor and he cleaned those up. Mm. He describes it with this such a visual storyteller. Like you can visualize it as he's telling it. And what does his face look like? Doesn't even flinch. Nothing. Doesn't even flinch. He goes back down and drags Helen's body into the barely used ballroom in the sleeping bag. At this time he writes the letters to his children's schools. 
that he's going away on a trip. Mm -hmm. They're all going on away on a trip. He then goes to the bank. He takes out about $2,000 from an account he shared with his mother. He goes to the post office to stop the mail and send letters to the school. He then goes home, makes a sandwich, and waits for his children. Even with his wife and his mother dead in the home, he just goes on with his day normally and eats lunch. He said that he didn't have any remorse or second thoughts. Jeez. Once he started, he couldn't stop. At this time especially. He didn't want any of the children to remain right. alive with the fact that these women were dead. <sighs> so his daughter was the first to come home. She went to the kitchen and grabbed herself a snack. And then John shot his daughter in the back of the head. He moved her to a sleeping bag and moved her into the ballroom. Frederick, 13, came home. He, too, was shot in the back of the head, put in a sleeping bag, and put next to his sister. Instead of waiting for his older son to come home, he went to the school to pick him up. Oh. He watched him play a soccer game. They joked around on the way home. This is even worse. Remember, this is Cliff Notes from his interview. This is him saying right, this. Right, he told the story, right. They just joked around like a normal on the way home. When they got home, he put his gym bag, his son was putting his gym bag down, and his father shot him in the head. But John didn't drop like the others, so he was shot several times more. Ten more times, to be exact. Ten. But he claims, like the rest, that John did not suffer. He takes John's body in a sleeping bag and moves it next to the rest of the family in the ballroom. After this, he cleans. And after he's done cleaning, he, quote, felt total relief and so relaxed. The first thing he did was sit in the kitchen for another meal. He compared eating at this time to eating while he was at war. He ate, quote, peacefully in the room where I had killed my family. Holy smokes. Then he went to bed. He slept in the house? Yep. The next morning he turned the air conditioning on mm -hmm. to 50 degrees to keep the bodies from decomposing. He turned all the lights on and turned the radio to his favorite classical music station, thinking that an intruder would run if they broke into the home. The final act was writing the letter to his pastor because, quote, he deserved an explanation. <laughs> a month later, the bodies were found. But he had already boarded a train, and by the time the police had found the bodies, John List was 2,000 miles away in Denver, Colorado. He got a motel room under the name Robert P. Clark and worked as a cook at a hotel restaurant on the outskirts of Denver. It was his fresh start. His burden was gone. He said that he was rarely haunted, and he felt no guilt, no remorse. Jeez. As time went on, this is a quote, as time went on, I thought less and less of the family. I was thankful to be living a free life. I didn't want to be incarcerated if it wasn't necessary. <laughs> of course not. Over the years, he went back to being an accountant and even met a woman. They got married in 1986. Was he holding jobs down? Yeah. I, yeah. No one knew that 15 years prior, John had killed his entire family. No hint oh, of it. Oh, my gosh. So back in Westfield, New Jersey, they knew that List was still out there. They constantly, like, the newspapers reported on the anniversary. The FBI joined in the search to find him. He was a wanted fugitive. Tons of tips leading nowhere. They followed all of them, but 
just got super frustrated. They even collaborated with local media with no success. In 1988, a new national show, America's Most Wanted, started to air. It was getting a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. So Westfield police thought this may be a great opportunity to catch John. Mm Mm-hmm. The FBI was turned down no. when they came to America's Most Wanted asking for them to take on the case. But they didn't give up. They requested, Why would they turn him down? That's absolutely... They requested for eight months, giving them all the gruesome details, just trying to get like them to latch on. Finally, producers give in. John Walsh, you know, the, the lead, the, he's the creator, the host of mm-hmm. America's Most Wanted... He was interviewed and he said he was really intrigued. He hated John List from everything he had heard from the police and thought, wouldn't it be something if we caught this guy? No kidding. So now it's 1991. John List, or should I say Robert, or his friends knew him, Bob, lived with his new wife, worked in an accounting firm, spent his weekends gardening, and enjoyed his evening TV. His favorite program America's America's Most Wanted. wanted. In his interview, he said that it crossed his mind on a couple occasions that his case may be up there, but he never really put much thought into it until one day. There it was. He remembers watching and it totally shocked him when a bust of the wanted criminal was shown. A local artist had sketched what the killer would look like and they made a bust of it. And wow. It's super it similar. Just like yeah, him. I'll wow. I'll post a picture. It was so similar, in fact, that a neighbor called in. I mean, absolutely adamant that that's Bob Clark. That is Bob Clark. June first, ninety one. Federal agents come to his home while he's at work. His new wife, Dolores, didn't believe it. No inclinations that any of this was true, and had this had nothing to do with her husband. She didn't believe it so much that she told them exactly where he was so that he could be fingerprinted. (laughs) Match. No questions asked. He was arrested that same day. Nearly 18 years had passed. Wow. Robert Clark denied, denied, denied. Even after fingerprints. That's not me. still not me. It was actually only in court that he dropped his alias of Bob Clark. New Jersey held on to all evidence, which made the trial very easy to conduct and convict. June 29th, the, the defense had John moved out to a New Jersey prison for court, and it was a huge media circus. It was an incredibly high-profile arrest and transport. He was observed, and they found that his only, quote, disability, if you can even call it that, was OCD. The defense worked with this on their case. They didn't deny the murders. But they blamed the crime on a personality disorder. Oh, no. But it was found that regardless of his OCD disorder, he knew what was right from wrong. He was not insane. He was a capable person and could not be absolved. He made a choice, the letter being the main proof of that. Mm -hmm. He took full responsibility in that letter and had intentional planning. He was found guilty on all five counts. He received five consecutive life terms. The courtroom broke out in applause. Yes. So I guess that's like one of the very few occurrences that has ever happened. The courtroom just stood and applauded. May 1990, he entered prison. He says he takes solace in the years he was out, and he says that he has made the best of prison life. 
He even has a job in prison that he takes pride in. Quote, I don't know what the situation will be in heaven. I know that when we are all in heaven, I know we will surely forgive each other for what happened here. Unquote. You want to hear a twist? Gives me chills just thinking about it. It's really a sad irony. So you remember the fire I mentioned at the very beginning? Right. Mm -hmm. Well, when they went to clean it up after the fire, they found that the ballroom ceiling, the ceiling that hung over the poor deceased List family, the ceiling was an original stained glass Louis Tiffany worth over $100,000. List could have used that at the time and saved them all. That was just God, you bonkers. Want to hate that man? I'm yes, sorry. you hate. I, You're not supposed to I, hate anybody, but I, that that I is hate just him. and to feel no remorse. I mean, like I said, he is such a visual storyteller. If you do watch the interview or that show, I I do recommend it. It's super interesting. He just sits there and just tells everything just straightforward. He's this super skinny old man, like he's balding he's got crazy hair sticking up like he's just this skinny little thing and just telling you how like just telling you the facts can you imagine his second wife dolores she divorced him when he was in prison i mean clearly but But no can you imagine her whole life just turned upside down like totally her whole yeah like and no trust in anybody ever i can't even imagine her ever trusting anybody everything you believed in for 15 years or however long they were married yeah i think you said 15 years Mm -hmm. just totally was not real no holy smokes all right so now with my paranormal the hindenburg a lot of people have heard about this and i thought it was interesting because of that so the Luftschiff, with which translated is airship, Zeppelin 129 Hindenburg left the Rhine-Main Airport, that's in Frankfurt, Germany, on May 3rd, 1937. Its destination, the United States. The Hindenburg was over 800 feet long, 135 feet in diameter, and weighed about 250 tons oh my gosh to get off the ground the 16 gas cells had to be filled with combustible hydrogen now this was not the hindenburg's first flight across the atlantic it had completed 20 flights before that held the speed record of all previous zeppelins the airship could go 84 miles per hour but with favorable winds the engines could accelerate up to 188 miles per hour it's just crazy it's just a giant balloon yeah it is so crazy to me a trip from germany to the u.s took about 37 hours wow isn't that crazy if you're gonna say 37 days (laughs) 37 hours i know it could hold as many as 50 to 70 passengers okay now i just showed you that picture yes there were 20 heated cabins at the center of the hull's lower decks with restrooms with showers centrally located. There was also a dining room, a reading room, a writing and smoking room. The promenade deck held amazing views through panoramic windows. Do you see that on the side This there? is just crazy. It's like a cruise ship, a miniature cruise ship up in the sky. Up in the sky. On the fateful flight in May, 
1937, there were only 36 passengers and 61 crew members. So, so remember, was this like a common thing that people flew on these? It's not common, but it wasn't. This wasn't the first one. So was it super expensive as a passenger to fly on? I'm assuming these? it was. I mean, it could hold as many as 50 to 70 passengers, but there were only 36 passengers. It was pretty. I wouldn't want to do 36 hours across the ocean. That would terrify me. Well, I don't even know if I want to do that in a plane. People let would alone take a balloon ships across, and that yeah. would take a lot longer, you know. But I think it was fairly expensive. Um, it was very fancy, you know. Just looking at the menu was it was all very fancy and cool and yeah, muck muck, <laughs> muck muck. <laughs> So on this certain flight, several storms actually delayed the flight. The Hindenburg finally reached the Naval Air Station in Lakehurst, New Jersey at 6 p.m. on May 6th. Now remember, they left on May 3rd. Three days. So heavy rains prevented the airship from landing. At 7.25, as the landing was initiated, the people on board heard a muffled explosion. And moments later, the Hindenburg became engulfed in flames. Oh, my gosh. How terrifying. The airship lurched for several minutes and then crashed to the ground bow first. Mm. It was completely destroyed. Theories as to what happened, maybe sabotage or a lightning strike or a buildup of static electricity, which could have ignited the hydrogen. So Weird. We just unknown. don't know. I always thought that everyone on the Hindenburg died that day. But that's not true. Really? Yep. I mean, looking at that picture, you'd think that, Yeah. good Lord. But of the 35 passengers, 13 died. Oh, my gosh. And of the 61 crew members, 22 died. There was also an American crew member on the ground that was killed by falling debris. Most of the crew who died were inside the hull and had no escape route. Most of the passengers who were killed were trapped in the starboard side of the passenger deck. Again, looking at that picture. Mm -hmm. The airship had rolled slightly to that side, cutting off any escape through the windows, and the sliding door leading to the escape jammed shut in this crash, so they were trapped. The passengers, lucky enough to be on the port side of the ship, escaped the horrendous fire, most of them injury-free. Wow. Talking about just fate. I mean, seriously. The landing had been celebrated as the first anniversary of the inauguration of transatlantic passenger service and was the opening of the 1937 season. So it brought a lot of press to the landing site. Oh my gosh. This Imagine is, witnessing this. Mm-hmm. This oh. is evident in the photos that sure. you see, all yes. the film footage that you can see of the fire engulfing the airship. Herbert Morrison, a reporter for station WLS in Chicago, was in attendance that day. And his eyewitness account, which was aired the following day, is well known and to me very haunting in itself. I'm going to read some of that because it really explains or it really brings to mind what he experienced. Okay. The following is an excerpt from Morrison's account. The ship is riding majestically towards us like some great feather, riding as it might, mighty proud of the place it's playing in the world's aviation. The ship is no doubt bustling with activity. It's practically standing still now. They've 
dropped ropes out of the nose of the ship, and it's been taken a hold of down on the field by a number of men. It's starting to rain again. The rain has slackened up a little bit. The back motors of the ship are just holding it, just enough to keep it from... It burst into flame! Oh my gosh. It burst into flame, and it's falling. It's crashing. Watch it. Watch it. Get out of the way! Get out of the way! Get this! Charlie, Charlie, get this! It's fire, and it, it's crashing. Oh my, oh my God, get out of the way, please! This is the worst of the worst catastrophes in the world. Oh, the humanity! And all the passengers screaming around here. I told you, it. I can't even talk to people. Their friends are out there. Uh, it, it, oh, I can't talk, ladies and gentlemen. Honestly, it's just laying there, a mass of smoking wreckage. Ah, uh, and everybody can hardly breathe and talk and screaming. Lady, I, I, I'm sorry. Honest, I, I, I can hardly breathe. I, I'm going to step inside where I can't see it. And, uh, I can't. Listen, folks, I, I'm going to have to stop for a minute because... I've lost my voice. This is the worst thing I've ever witnessed. Oh my gosh. That, the pictures are horrifying. And that whole thing just really, the way he's talking, that's why I quoted it, it just brings you there. Yeah, absolutely. Years later, Morrison said that he had said, oh, the humanity, because he thought that everybody on board the Zeppelin had died. Mm. Still witnessing the sight would have been horrendous. So terrifying. Eyewitnesses at the site said they will never forget the horrible smell of burning flesh. Oh, jeez. 26 unidentified burned bodies were brought to a hangar, which had been made into a temporary morgue. I'm sure that people who were there that day never forgot the horrendous scene. And I've also assumed that there is some residual heaviness on the base, especially in hangar number one, which was the temporary morgue. Okay. Today, Lake Hurst Hangar Number 1 is used as a training site for flight deck personnel. The following is from Weird NJ, Haunted Hindenburg Hangar at Lake Hurst, and this is a comment from a reader, Glenn F., who shared his story. I was stationed at Lake Hurst Naval Air Station, and let me tell you, Hangar Number 1 is indeed haunted. (laughs) They used it as a morgue after the Hindenburg explosion, and there is a tunnel leading from the adjacent hangars where it was cooler to store the bodies. As adventurous as we were, no one would explore number one after dark. There were serious bad vibes in that place. Anyone in the hangar would get the let's boogie now feeling. (laughs) There were always footstep sounds in the rafters. Something happened there to us where a bunch of burly sea bees all ran out screaming like girls. But for the life of me, I can't recall what it was. Oh, my gosh. We were in one of the classrooms doing MOPP, which is hazmat training. And we all ran out in the fish boots and charcoal suits. It was high noon in 90 degree mark, but they all ran out into the heat for some reason. Oh, my gosh. Well, people have heard footsteps in the rafter. Some have reported seeing apparitions and voices yelling, She's a fire! Most everyone says that there is definitely a bad vibe in the area. The following was a post on New Jersey haunted houses. 
Okay. While working at the Lakehurst Naval Air Station in the late 70s as a Department of Defense police officer, I had the opportunity to go into Hangar 1 around 1 in the morning. I remember hearing noise coming from the rafter above. I took the one-man elevator to the top of the inside of the hangar, and I walked across the small stairs to see what I could locate. I stopped halfway across and thought I felt a hand on my shoulder. No one was there. Time to leave. (laughs) Time to boogie, as the other guy said. (laughs) Who knows? (laughs) A few weeks later, I went back to Hangar 1 and located one of the tunnels under the desk. Desk. Deck, wow, are you pulling a Beth over there? No, I, I <laughs> like, I didn't catch that before. Um, and went down inside. I followed it for a while, and soon I had a cold feeling around me. Sometime later, I read the tunnel was a morgue after the Hindenburg crash because it was cool inside. Don't ever think the haunt hangar isn't haunted in some way. Mm. Another story I read goes like this. A maintenance man was leaving after having worked in the hangar all day. He realized he'd forgotten something and headed back into the hangar. When he entered, a freezing cold engulfed him. All of a sudden, a hand touched his shoulder and a warmth passed through his body. Weird. Which is like the opposite of... Yeah, that's weird. He turned, but no one was there. This spooked him and he headed back out of the hangar. As he passed between the hangar and the adjoining office space, the warmth left, and again he was engulfed in bitter cold. How weird. So, as I said before, there's a passage that runs the length of the hangar. The doors of the passage are still reported to suddenly slam shut violently. Oh, gosh. Then there's the story of a Navy officer walking alone along the passage at night. He sees another Navy man at the end of the tunnel walking towards him. He's dressed in outdated dress blues, which throws the officer. As the Navy man draws near, the officer says, Hello, but there's no response from the Navy man as he passes. The officer turns to see the other man go, but there's no one there. He's not there! Oh, gosh! No! So are all these stories just contrived? And there's many more. There's many more stories. Oh, my God. Are all these stories just contrived from vivid imaginations? Or is there actually something to them? Out of the two of us, I'm the more skeptical one, as (laughs) we know. But whatever the case, I think everyone can agree that what happened on that May day in 1937 was a horrendous tragedy that will never be forgotten. And to me... The words of the reporter are just haunting in themselves. No, absolutely. And then along with these stories of witnesses saying that they've experienced all these different things. And a lot of the same things, too, like just cold spots and a hand on their shoulder. It's like... Yeah. And these aren't... These are like burly Navy guys. Yeah, (laughs) sure. And police, you know, and, and so it's not like they're going to admit... That they were scared no. unless they really were terrified. So, and it can't be like some residual haunting where, because the people that were brought there were already deceased. So it's got to be, which is kind of sad. It's like they're just stuck there because it happened so quickly to them. But residual so stuck in the there. fact of such a tr- huge tragedy. Yeah. 
that so many people witnessed. I always wonder, like, if they relive that, if they're reliving that, these spirits, if you believe in ghosts. If they're reliving that tragic accident or if they're in the moment of just like, why am I here? Yeah. I, I, you know. Can you imagine really? Oh, so scary. I thought that that was a good historical. You and your history. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I keep going back to But hey, we had the German theme this week. Even though we're covering New Jersey. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Any New Jersey Germans out there, I hope we made you proud. <laughs> well, I want to thank everybody again for listening. I will post pictures of everything we chatted about on our social media. You can find us on Facebook at Killer Hangover Podcast. We're also on Instagram at Killer Hangover. Also, we would love to hear your stories. We'd love any advice on future stories at killer hangover podcast at gmail.com or you can message us on any of our social media sites this was fun mom another great episode and next week we are going to talk about nebraska nebraska yeah this was yes. uh, i'm sure you've heard of this guy but um, i i hadn't so it was really a fun uh investigation i always really enjoy sitting back and listening to the true crime (laughs) (laughs) doing the research of the true crime and telling it can kind of spook you out a little bit yeah doing the research on the true crime is yeah it takes a lot it's not just like sit down do it real quick and write it out it's it takes a lot emotional it is it really is you feel for victims you feel for sometimes even even the the killer the killer Mm -hmm. so it's it's just yeah it's it's kind of nice i'm really looking forward to next week of sitting back enjoying the beverage and listening to you tell me a true crime story this time oh there you go there you go and then we're going to get up to 20 and we're going to do like we did on number 10 and we're going to talk same about place same place yes yep. same place different time that's right all right guys thank you so much for listening we would you'll hear us next week i never know what to say i never know how to cl- you can catch us again next week all right there we go so, so zum wohl is what we say for cheers in germany okay <laughs> don't ask me to say that i'll butcher it Okay, you say cheers. I'll say it. Okay. <laughs> Here you go. Zum Wohl. Okay. Cheers, Mama. Love you, kid. <laughs> ich lieb dich, Kind. <laughs>